0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. When you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the app store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. Then when you register, hit the promo code box. I think it says, tell us how you heard about Stitcher and where it says that enter the promo code, other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win a hundred bucks. That's all it takes. The latest episode of other people will then be waiting for you in your favorites and you'll get access to tons of other amazing content, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app go download it at stitcher.com or in the app store free of charge it's available for your iphone your android your tablet computer whatever you got and don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you register this is an app you can apply it go and get it oh my god
2: you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common
1: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done
2: i think it's really beautiful jesus did what a struggle you know it was incredible you know was like your head exploded seeing what was really there
0: and now here's your host Bradley Steve.
1: Just one person at just one time. All right, Right. everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is Strange Entertainment. This is almost like eavesdropping. My guest today is Jeff Ragsdale. He's the author of an incredibly interesting new book called Jeff, One Lonely Guy. Uh, Actually, he's the co-author of the book, along with David Shields and Michael Logan. And uh, what to say about it? It's a book that defies easy description. It fits no category uh, that I know of. And, uh, here, here, like, for example, here's what Brett Easton Ellis has to say about it. Quote, I've never read anything like it, end quote. And then here's what Nick Flynn says, quote, it's unlike anything I've ever read, end quote. So it's one of those books. It's not like anything you've ever read. And it was born, uh, essentially by accident, uh, back in October of 2011. So perhaps, you know, the story, uh, Jeff, who was, uh, you know, a struggling actor and a standup comedian, He was reeling from a breakup and he started posting a flyer in New York City, in Manhattan, asking people to call him if they wanted to talk. That's what the flyer said. In fact, here's exactly what it said. Quote, if anyone wants to talk about anything, call me. And then, you know, obviously he put his number on it. And then he signed it, Jeff, one lonely guy. And it was on yellow paper. And he put a few of these things up in Manhattan and the phone started ringing. And the text messages started coming in by the thousands. And people took uh, you know, photos of the flyer with their phones. And it went on the internet. And it went viral. And the rest is history. You know, And I'm not going to say uh, that much more. Just because Jeff and I are going to talk about all of it at length in just a minute. But you know, trust me when I say you don't want to miss this one. It's an amazing story. And it's an amazing book. And uh, it's a book that gets my head uh, spinning. You know, it really gets you thinking about a lot of things. And, uh, you know, in my own life, the only comparable, uh, you know, odd communication experience that I can think of that's anywhere near similar, it really isn't that similar, but it re- reminds me of this thing that I did when I was a kid, I was in elementary school and I remember I was eating donuts at church on a Sunday. It was like donut Sunday. like Once a month, I think we had donuts in the basement of church, uh, after mass And, uh, I'm down there with my family and I get a helium balloon. They were giving out helium balloons and I I took it home and I had this idea that I was going to write a letter and I was going to attach it to the helium balloon and then send it up into the atmosphere. So that's what I did. And, uh, I went into the backyard. I let this thing go. I washed it sail away until it disappeared. And then I forgot about it. And, you know, then like, you know, a couple of weeks later, One of our neighbors calls my mother and tells her that my name has appeared in the paper in a small town called Alpena, Michigan. And uh, believe it or not, it turned out that some kid in Alpena who lived on a farm, uh, I think, you know, was like walking home from school through a field. And my balloon and my letter drifted down just as he was walking and he actually caught it. And I guess his mother, uh, you know, talked about it and someone at the local paper heard the story and it wound up getting written up. And uh, this young boy eventually wrote me a letter, uh, you know, in response. So, you know, what makes it even stranger is is just how far the balloon traveled, because I was in Milwaukee and Alpena, Michigan uh, is in northeastern Michigan. It's up there. So, my balloon, uh, traveled across the expanse of Lake Michigan, which is a feat in and of itself, and then it went all the way across the entire state of Michigan, and then, uh, just so happened to fall directly into the hands of a young boy, essentially my age, on his way home from school. So, it's very odd. I haven't thought about that in a while. Uh... Anyway, otherwise, uh, I do have some good news related to The Nervous Breakdown, my online culture magazine and literary community. We just launched a brand new version of the site, TNB 4.0, the fourth iteration of The Nervous Breakdown uh, in six years. And it's a much cleaner and simpler new design. And I think everyone's going to really enjoy it. It's, uh, it's easy to read. Uh, it's definitely easier to read on an iPad or any tablet computer. And I'm very excited about it. So if you want to check it out, go visit nervousbreakdown.com and be sure to follow it on the Twitter. Uh, the handle is at TNBTweets. So uh, as sort of a side note, I should mention that it was a stressful process getting the redesign done. Uh, it always is. It's just the nature of web design uh, in my experience. Uh, there's just a lot of decisions to make. There's a lot of tedium. And there are always inevitably delays and technological snafus, and quagmires, and accidents, and just endless problems that must be addressed. But eventually, they do get solved. And this time around, we were in the thick of it, and I was stressed out. And it was like ten o'clock at night, and I was trying to get a hold of my uh, web designer guy. And I finally did. And we were at a point in the process where I, you know, I really needed to get some, you know, some stuff done. It was past deadline, and I was starting to get a little anxious. So my designer guy assures me. That he's on the job, it's going to get done, 100% guaranteed. He and his crew are going to stay up late and they're going to work on it. And uh, that's what he said. So, you know, I went to bed feeling good. And I wake up early the next morning and nothing has been done. Nothing. So naturally I'm frustrated and I email this guy uh, essentially saying, uh, you know, what the fuck. And I hear nothing back. And then a little while later uh, I text, Nothing. And then at lunchtime, I call him and I get voicemail immediately and I don't get, a, I don't get a call back. So then in the mid afternoon, I email no response. And, you know, this is not like me to do this, but I felt like, I felt like this was very strange. So it's around six o'clock at night. It's the end of the day. I haven't heard word one from this guy. And, uh, you know, in addition to being exasperated, I'm now at the point where I'm genuinely concerned, you know, I'm thinking like maybe this guy went rogue you know i feel like i know him pretty well but who knows like what happened here so i leave a voicemail message uh you know tinged with desperation and a couple hours later i get a text message and the guy tells me that he's just out of jail he uh he was in prison <laughs> for 24 hours on suspicion of a dui so it turned out that the previous night uh right after we had spoken he had a, you know and he and he had assured me that he would indeed be working Uh, on my site, he went out to the store to get some Red Bull and some snacks for his employees, and I guess he'd had a beer or two, and he got pulled over, and uh, his dad is a cop, which I didn't realize. And I guess his dad had told him to never, under any circumstances, blow into a breathalyzer if you've had anything to drink. You know, to to instead ask for a urine test or a blood test, uh, which is within your rights. Uh, But of course, this means that, you know, they take you into jail. So... He'd only had a couple of beers, uh, but he, he remembered what his father had told him and he went to jail and he spent almost 24 hours in prison while his blood test was being processed. And at the end of it, uh, it turned out fine. You know, he was, he was well under the legal limit, no big deal, no charges pressed. And he was released, uh, of his own recognizance. Is that how you say that? And so right after he was released, that's when he texted me. And, uh, I guess the cops did not allow him a phone call. Which I think was a violation of his rights So his employees and his wife Had no idea where he was And spent the night in a kind of panic Thinking that he was dead Or that something terrible had happened You know, last they knew He had gone out to get Red Bull And some uh, snack foods And then nothing So, it was a traumatic experience For all parties uh, But all's well that ends well The nervous breakdown has gotten uh, a makeover And it looks very fancy and uh you know it has uh, all sorts of new bells and whistles so go visit the nervousbreakdown.com check it out for yourself and please know that i'm negotiating to see if i can get my hands on uh this mugshot i, I want my web designer's mugshot i've been pressing him for it uh, and he did tell me that he would let me have it and if i get it i'm going to post it on the nervous breakdown so everybody can see it so stay tuned for that uh, i'm not 100% sure if it's actually going to happen but i will try my best
0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: So that's that. And uh, I'm really excited about today's show and, uh, and very excited about Jeff's book. It's an odd, beautiful book filled with a lot of human pain and honest, emotional expression And uh, it's just such an unusual story that seems to reflect the times. So I think we should just get right to it. This is me talking to Jeff Ragsdale, the co-author, along with David Shields and Michael Logan, of Jeff,
0: One Lonely Guy.
2: What happened is this strange, chaotic accident. First of all, I went through a tough breakup. 2011, worst year by far for me. I just got out of this breakup. I didn't know too many people in New York. I've been here off and on for five years. I found it's hard to meet people. So after this breakup, I was walking around one day. I had um, just got a new phone that was unlimited. My old phone was not unlimited, so I was always running over and pissed off. So after this breakup, I go, you know what? I want to start talking to people more, family. You know, I've been rather isolated the last few years. And so I got unlimited, and I was walking through the city, and I go, how the hell can I engage some of these new yorkers how can i talk to people you know i'm I'm fucked up i haven't you know really outside of my relationships had many friends i haven't talked to people and as i was walking i was seeing like little flyers here and there on poles and i go what well, you know what i'm just gonna make a simple flyer see what happens you know i thought that maybe 20 people at the mm-hmm. most would call me i thought half of them would be you know creepers weirdos and the sign just said something very simple like if you want to talk call me and I put my phone number immediately New Yorkers and overwhelming numbers started calling me actually by the hundreds within the next couple of days New Yorkers took photos of my flyer put it on the web and it started going viral on sites like uh, reddit Anger, all over Facebook, funny pics. So some days I was getting up to 2,000 phone calls within the first week. So I was just completely overwhelmed. But it was mm-hmm. amazing that, A, I reached out. People were reaching back to me. They wanted to know mm-hmm. my story. People were revealing, revealing their issues. And, you know, they some <laughs> most of the people were lonely as well a bit. So it was this weird reciprocal relationship that was, you know, absolutely by accident. Again, I thought, you know, a few people'd call. And so after about the first three weeks or so I hadn't like taken notes, you know, I was just like consumed with like, Jesus, people do want to talk, you know, um I was you know, cynical about people in general, didn't think, you know, you know, maybe somebody would call and say hi, but I was having an hour-long conversations. Then, you know, people from tons of Canadians were calling, people from, you know, different countries, Saudi Arabia, everywhere started to call. And so after about a month, I started to notate, you know, some of these phone conversations. I started to um, save the texts and stuff. I'd known David Shields for about 10 years. Um, I'd stayed with him at University of Washington, and so I'd been in contact with him. I had an agent who wanted to rep me with this. After about a month, I I queried a few people just to see, you know, if anyone would be interested, and I had some interest. And then I I asked David, you know, he said, well, let me see some of these texts. Let me see some of these phone conversations you've written up. And so he looked at them and said, Jesus, man, this is a... some unusual stuff here I'd been writing a Mm -hmm. memoir and personal essays for you know a few years and what we did was we took a lot of my autobiographical stuff and started mixing it David Shields and his friend Michael Logan and myself and just you know developing themes through all this weird strange material that was coming in so you know the phone didn't stop because it continued to be viral so every day I was getting you know hundreds of texts and phone stuff. So we just started building this book and building. And after about, you know, two and a half months of working daily on it, we got it, you know, finished. It it came together really quickly just because it, you know, the voices, I think you've read it, Brad, are just unbelievably compelling. It's people at ground zero as I was just saying, hey, man, this is what happened to me. I'm fucked up. How can, you know, here's what I did to help myself. Maybe it can help you, Jeff. Then we had people, you know, you know, just calling to say, hey, and I mean, so it's this crazy experience that I never thought would happen. So I'm still kind of in the moment. So it's hard for me to even really understand what's going on because I'm still getting tons of calls. It hasn't died on the net. So it's like this strange, almost David Lynchian surreal world I'm in mean, where I don't know who's going to call. You know, it's really interesting. It's really cool. And it has, you know, helped me. People always ask, you know, Jeff, are you less lonely? I am but I found that, that I'm a little bit happier too, you know, I've just gotten all this, you know, from gurushi type people, you know, their little insights into happiness about uh, how to forgive and all that stuff. So it's just been this Strange journey that I probably would have never picked up any of this knowledge anywhere in my life, you know, so it's been you know very therapeutic and just an eye opening experience to see all this to talk to these people and i've actually developed some friendships um, i've gone out actually on dates you know New Yorkers have called, but it's weird because the friends i 've developed i 've noticed that. It's people immediately, when they call you, you can tell that they're similar to you. You They've been isolated, that they've been lonely. Um, Perhaps, you know, I grew up in a dysfunctional relationship. So there's this immediate connection you notice with people. And a lot of them, you know, have become people I talk to at least once a week. You know, there are others that, you know, call me daily and stuff. So, you know, it's kind of the journey and how the book evolved.
1: Okay, so when you like, just to just to get a clear picture of how this all transpired, you hung up one flyer, or did you hang up multiple flyers? Like multiple. I hung
2: up multiple. I I like walked down the west side of New York, probably about twenty-five in total.
1: Starting where? Starting where? And then going where? You just like walking south, or like what was happening?
2: Yeah, I was walking down. I started around Columbia University, which is 116 and Broadway, and then just walked down and fired next around 72nd, which is a big hub. Then I you know, took a bus down to, like, Chelsea and did a few, few around there and also, like, on Houston Street, just up and down that strip. I mean, so it's amazing that just those amount of flyers still have phone calls and texts coming in every day. I actually have a blog, and, you know, it just it fills up daily. I mean, it's incredible that, you know, four and a half months ago, this flyer, you know, is still alive. <laughs>
0: yeah, no. You know,
2: even though it's not around in the city, it's it's not hung up anymore, because the sanitation department takes them down immediately. So... Where the luck came for me, and it's absolute luck, is that people took the photos of it when it was up, or, you know, within two hours, they're ripped down. So it's very hard to, you know, get anything like this to happen.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's like an accident of fate. I mean, it's not fate, because, I mean, you you had to take the action. So it's not all just, like, you know, luck. You had to do something. But once you did it, and you put it out into the world, like, people just went nuts with it. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's, uh... You, you could never have predicted.
2: <laughs> no, I tell people that all the time. They go, well, hell, I want to do that, man. They go, you know, it happened by accident. And I go, if I set out to try to do this, it wouldn't have happened. It's one of those strange things that does somehow an accidentally. And the thing with the flyer is people identify it on multiple layers. A, they can sense it came from somewhere inside, you know, it did. And then B, people think, you know, it has just an, a welcoming aspect and then a humor aspect. So it's operating on different levels. So it's like everyone, I think, can identify with the simpleness and, and the overall message, you know, that we're all lonely. And, and you know, at some point,
1: so so okay so you start getting phone calls I mean are you freaking out like uh, you know like first of all you know just being willing to share your cell phone number with uh the world you know like is one thing a lot of people wouldn't even uh consider doing that but then you do it and you start getting these texts and you start getting these phone calls uh like were you scared to answer your phone at any point or were you just like were you ready for it
2: I mean I wasn't scared I've done like for a few years I did stand up and basically my stand-up was complete autobiographical stuff, uh, where I would just go up on stage and I would tell you every flaw I have, everything I did, you know, you know how I screwed this up. So, you know, I'm I got I think from doing that really sh- took the layers off me, where you know I don't care anymore, and I know that and I've thought about this a lot because people ask a similar question. Life is so short. I mean, we maybe have. 35 or 40 good years you know after puberty before you start getting old so i mean i don't give a shit what anyone thinks i mean i'm just going to put it all out there i don't care i know that we're all going to die and that basically it's a big chaotic mess and accident so i mean if i can share my experience and it can like do anything for someone else i'm going to do it you know what i mean i don't care there's no i won't try and have no skin period i just don't give a shit at all i don't people hate me their deal
1: Well, you know, that's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, I sometimes have this internal debate with myself where I'm like wondering how much uh, I should share online or how much – you know what I'm saying? Especially with social media, I'm always – I'm forever fucking tortured by that. But uh, there are other days where I have a similar attitude uh, to the one you just described where I'm like, fuck it. It doesn't matter. Like quit taking yourself so seriously and we're all going to go up – uh, in smoke at some point anyway, you know what I'm saying? So forgive
2: Right, I agree. You know, just like people, I see a lot of other uh, people who are artists and stuff, and you can tell when they give interviews or whatever, they're always, like, thinking of their PR and, like, God, it makes no sense. I mean, we're all going to die. We're in the moment. Life is urgent. I mean, tomorrow I could get run over by a car, so I... I- do not care at all i mean i 'll tell anyone anything you know i've made many mistakes in my life, you know a lot of them you know i've learned from some take more time you know I've, I've fucked up, but I, I don't care i 'll give it to whoever wants it you know what i mean I just don 't feel there's any other way to live you know i've seen my share of shit and just don't you know i'm open i guess Try so, to be.
1: so do people uh, i mean because like, like you said earlier too, like the experiment if that 's what you want to call it of posting this flyer and then starting to receive all the you know all of these texts and phone calls uh you know it operates for people on multiple levels for some people it's like a cry uh from a lonely person you know what i'm saying like it's a it's a, it's reaching out or whatever uh hoping for some connectivity but to other people it operates at the level of humor and i'm sure you got some uh, amount of ridicule from people like did you get a lot of messages from people who were um you know making fun of you did you get that
2: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as much as I thought. I mean, maybe 15% of the calls I get texts are negative people, people, you know, popping off or like, what the hell are you doing, man? Go die or stuff like that. But it's a small percentage. I thought it would be much higher, even with the 20 people I thought, you know, I said half of them would probably be weirdos, you know, telling me off or whatever. So, It's just blown my mind in that aspect. A lot of people do actually care. I mean, it's amazing. I still am kind of in the bubble where I don't really understand it, but they do. I mean, every day I get people, hey, Jeff, uh, don't text you back, but I just want to say, you know, wish you luck, man, hang in there, stuff like that. So it's incredible on that, you know, to that degree that people actually do care. I I have no idea they did. You know, as I said, very cynical.
1: Okay, so, yes, I mean, like, has this – I know you're still in it so maybe you haven't like solidified your perspective on it but has it changed the way that you view humanity in any permanent way do you know what i'm saying can you feel it like do you do you think that like you know after receiving all of these well wishes from people and you know and, and having the ratio be what it is where the well wishes far outnumber uh, the haters you know do you view the world differently now
2: That's tough. I mean, I'm happier, so I would have a different lens in that degree. So, I mean, I—it's so hard to not talk like Oprah in these situations. But, I mean, God, it's a very difficult question. I mean, I'm constantly in a battle with myself on. You know, I, I've been selfish at times, and I don't want to be. I mean, I know that so many people out there, actually, and I hate altruism. I'll put that out there, that most people are altruistic because they want to, you know, feel good about themselves. I mean, I'd like to help people to help them, and that's what I want to eventually kind of do any way that I can. Because, I mean, a lot of people I've learned from even, you know, this phone are, had really shitty lives. You know, many people were beat, raped growing up, and I found through this they were happier than I was, and I was looking at myself going, God, you know, I had some stuff in my life, but look at this, and these people are positive, you know, and I've been negative for years, you know, looked at, you know, the worst end of stuff, and so, I mean, it's opened my eyes in many ways, you know, just that I want to try to, you know, I, I God, it sounds terrible, but be a better person. I mean, it's just the way it comes out. But I mean, I'd like to like try and help more, I guess, because I've seen other people do that, and I've learned through this that you know there are a lot of people who reach back to me, and you know I reached out. So
1: yeah, well, and and you know it's funny that you say because I've actually talked about this on the podcast before, where uh, you talk about altruism and doing nice things, and like it actually can be uh s- sort of a uh, a tangle or like a uh, it can be vexing to think about because you know as soon as you know that reaching out to people and doing nice things and helping is actually good for you it actually benefits you uh it starts to become difficult to know uh, your motivations and whether or not they're truly altruistic or whether there's like a strong measure of self-interest invested in them. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I don't mean to diminish them, but it's just it's, it, it almost makes me laugh. It's like darkly funny because even when you're trying to do good, if you're aware of the fact that doing good is good for you, then you can't help but think to yourself, I'm doing good and this is good for me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I agree. Yeah, absolutely. It's fucked up. Yeah.
1: So, um, okay, so when you uh, let let's, I'm still fascinated with the 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 moment of genesis for this thing because it's unleashed so much human energy. I mean, when you think about it, like it's really fucking crazy. And when you yeah. are in New York, the day that this impulse hits you to start posting this flyer, um, what had preceded that day that brought you to that moment where you you know, because I mean, you have to be. Uh, I don't know, desperate not, might not be the right word, but I mean, I guess if you're, if you're lonely and you want to connect and you want to reach out to people, I, I think maybe that's fair. Like what was, what preceded it?
2: I mean, yeah, I was definitely desperate. This relationship I was in that I got out of, I mean, she left me. It was a very intense crazy, insane relationship. We were living together. I mean, I was completely, I mean, the lowest I've ever been in my life, you know, I drinking a lot, just doing anything. And so I, I was walking around, like hungover, thinking, you know, you know, when you're you're hungover, you think about all your fuck-ups and how I did this. So I was going through that and I go, you know, I just need to talk to people. I mean, I was suicidal, you know. Mm-hmm. I started to get that imagery of like, you know, putting a gun to your head and I talk actually to a lot of, psychologists who've called me since I posted my number, and they say that that's like stage one of, you know, killing yourself is starting to romanticize it and fantasize about it. And so, I mean, I was to that stage. I mean, I was low and desperate, and I just threw this out there, you know. And I was thinking, you know, maybe out of those 20 people to 10, I would have a few good connections where, you know, now I have unlimited calling. I can talk to these people for hours, which is what I needed, you know, just human voices. I really hadn't talked to people outside of my girlfriend, you know, or other relationships I've been in for years, you know, it have just been short. I've been trying to make it as an artist and going up that ladder, man, it, it breeds a selfish lifestyle and it's not really the artist's fault, but the way to make it is through kind of, you know, you have to cut everything else off basically. And just, you know, it takes 10 years, I think, to either learn your writing voice, to become an actor, to become a stand up. So, I mean, those 10 years, they're not fun years. There's a lot of, um, you know stuff that you have to like avoid which is like relationships stuff like that like friendships social in order to become that artist so i mean i was definitely caught in that and i hadn't made you know too many long term friendships or anything so i was just i mean i was at bottom level of everything
1: okay and who is this girlfriend like what what was that relationship like what made it so uh you know emotionally heated <sighs>
2: We're both very intense people and um, I would say a little bit on the, the dramatic side. So our, our fights would just, we would go back and forth and they would just escalate over nothing. You know, pretty soon we're screaming and yelling over a potato chip or something like that. So we was both hair-triggered tempered people with a lot of energy, cooped up, you know, not in the best um, financial situation you know she moved in with me after a couple weeks which was a crazy thing i I should have you know wouldn't neither of us should have done that but it just created all this intensity and then so it just started to explode you know but i was i needed her at that point you know because i and so when she left it was just it was devastating i mean i didn't you know i had limited family so it just made it much worse how long how long were you guys together about a year of, you know, like daily living together, you know, our lives like just revolved around each other.
1: And then, and then she left and you guys had, you guys had a fight and she took off and that was it.
2: Yeah. And so it was like, basically, you know, that's it. And like going from living together and, you know, I'm codependent, I would definitely say to like nothing. I mean, I was like, God, I mean, it's the worst feeling in the world. I've lost both my parents, but Going through when you're living with someone, you're intimate with them, and losing them like in one day is, is much worse. However, bad that sounds, it's the truth, and I've actually talked to other people, and it is true. I mean, you're closer in, in a way to your, you know, lover than you are to your parents usually. So yeah, I mean, it was like just it's horrendous. I mean, it's like the worst experience. I wouldn't wish it on anyone.
1: Well, but you and you write about uh, you know a lot of like the the dynamics of the relationship really candidly in the book, and like. Uh is it Kira? Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, so she's like a, I mean, you know, you you're an emotional guy. She's very emotional to the point of like physical there's physical violence. Like she's throwing punches and stuff. I mean, at least in the book, is that correct? I mean, that's
2: what... Yeah, I mean she was um you know, going through a difficult point and she's been prescribed uh certain things and it it just got out of hand. And I don't know how much I can talk about that. Um, Like I I wish it it just got out of hand, I guess is the best way to put it where two people with great intentions and just the worst happened. I mean, it, it just got completely out of control and it was both of us, you know, it would just like explode.
1: So, okay. So then let's move on to like some relationships that you had with people that called you or texted you After the flyer went out and got viral, Um, like, did you I mean, you obviously like like you said, you still talk to some of these people on a weekly basis and have maintained something of a relationship with them, even if it's just a phone relationship. But um, like describe to me some of the early calls that you started to have that were actually substantive or text message relationships. And uh, and then talk about can you talk about any that might have developed into like actual person to person meetings uh, or even like some sort of like sexual experience? Did any of that happen?
2: Yeah, I mean, incredible. I've never actually sexted or anything, but it was it just evolved with these people. Like after a week of texting with them, it, the next thing would be, "Hey, man, what, what do you think about sex and stuff?" But I'll start with like relationships. Yeah, I've just met people from all over that that I'm quite close. Like there's a woman in Canada who's just gone through horrific violence in her life and she's actually a prostitute now and she operates in a brothel and you know she is just giving me her entire life story and, and and she actually even blogs about it it's given you know like access she'll have johns that she'll write about and then put it on my my blog so it's like she's someone who trusts and just wants to share you know how her experience came, you know, She, her parents abandoned her or whatever, and now she's a prostitute. She's trying to get out of that. She's making good money, so she's kind of addicted to the money, and you know, but she'll say, you know, this is what it's like. And she'll be very candid about it, and she wants to, like, start video inside the brothel. I'm kidding, so it's just wild wild run with her Um,
1: she's up in like alberta right is that the one that i'm remembering
2: or is it yeah i mean we changed stuff for the book just for privacy yeah
1: okay yeah okay so but i'm remembering the right character from the book Yeah,
2: correct. Okay. I mean, just an incredible woman, highly intelligent. You know, she could even be a writer. I mean, just really has great self-reflexive nature, very open, honest. And I think the pain has, like, opened her up where she's just like, you know, this is me. You know, you like it? You don't. But, you know, I've gone out on, like, four dates, and they have worked well in New York. Like, I would just get to know these people. Um, There's this one woman, Regina. She came to the United States when she was, like, three. Her dad was murdered. Um, She's living in Brooklyn now, and we've gone out on a couple nice dates. She's, like, you know, a college student, you know, really fun girl, uh, wants to be a vet. So there's just all these experiences where I think people were lonely. They'd have these tragic experiences, and they call to just, they they want a voice. They want someone to listen.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's also, you know, there's a couple things that struck me in reading it. It's, like, one is just the enormous amount of, pain and anguish that exists in humanity, you know, like people, all of us suffer, you know, everyone. And, right. you know, with the, the, this collection of voices that, uh, you know, you've put together in this book, uh, just, re- you know, that it brings that point home, in, you know, in, um, incredibly high relief, you know? And, uh, the other thing about the book that struck me, uh, is how, uh, sexual, people are, you know, right away, especially like as it, I think as an outgrowth of loneliness, like there's an incredible desire, uh, for intimacy and for pleasure as opposed to pain, you know?
2: Right. The escape. Definitely. I mean, so many, I mean, it is weird to have these phone sexual relationships I and mean, it. I would get very attached to these people, you know, it's like I, I was at that lonely point where, you know, someone's calling every day, we're exchanging pictures and next thing, you know, it's, she lives in Florida, I'm here, so what can we do? And yeah, we're having, you know, intense, like, phone sex and stuff, which i would never had, so it was like this bizarre universe, and it was, like, wild. It just evolved. I guess it makes sense that if you're two lonely people, you're on the phone, you know, and you're not having sex, it's going to come out, you know, it's just human nature.
1: Yeah, like, what? how does that even work? I mean, I I, I feel like I'm such a, I'm not a prude, but I'm just like, a, you know, what, you're just talking to each other? That doesn't even make sense to me. And then, like, you're just basically stimulating yourself while talking to the other person on the phone.
2: Yeah, it's just, you know, someone will send a text and then it, it just you're caught up in the moment and like every detail and text back, you're like going back and forth and it turns sexual erotic immediately. And next thing you know, you guys are both trying to, you know, have a sexual relationship via, you know, phone or text, whatever. It's it's really interesting. (laughs) Skype too, people want to do it, you know, and I've, I've done that a few times. So that's, you know, it's where you're in front of the computer like talking and like doing other, you know, appropriate things to,
1: well, yeah, I can see video. I mean, video makes more sense to me. But it's like I feel like on a like with just a phone call or like a text message, it would start to get a little bit absurd. Did you ever find yourself? Do you ever find yourself just laughing at like the absurdity of all this? I mean, you you must.
2: <laughs> um, I no. I mean, I think I. I don't know. It, the, the sexual experiences were they they just came about. I, I thought it was weird, but I mean, you would just get. Sucked in, you know, use language, but it, uh, it would just start going. And I mean, if you're horny, you know, like obviously I was and so are the other people, it just goes. So, I mean, you're just like sucked into it and you're just like going back and forth, back and forth. And I mean, I, looking back, you know, I haven't read the book in a, you know, a month now, but if I read it again, I'm sure I would laugh at some of the stuff, but it's just like it was there, you know, this is what happened. These are the texts going back and forth and,
1: well, I mean, yeah, cause it, it's it's funny. I mean, and I should say, having read like just read the book, so my experience with it is is pretty fresh. Like, there are funny parts to the book, but it's not what I would call a funny book. It's not like it's a humor book. I mean, you know, like the uh, the the pathos in the book or or the the anguish that you you know that's portrayed. It's real, you know. And um, I don't know. It's it's totally compelling and it's like really gripping stuff. And some of it's funny, but uh, I don't think funny would be the only descriptor.
2: <laughs> by, by no means. I mean, definitely you could probably even argue that I was in a nervous breakdown with the autobiographical stuff. I was writing about my relationship. I mean, I wrote that under just intense circumstances. Um, and, you know, I, I think it shows I was incredibly, incredibly, Uh, even when I was in a relationship because things were so difficult, I was like, you know, at, at my end there. And then once that break came in, I think that evolved into this phone thing. And like, you know, I was still, you know, you could probably argue like in, in a mild breakdown in a way, you know, just that this guy needed this so bad. He was that fucked up. And indeed I was, you know?
1: Okay. So, uh, in terms of like the relationships that you were developing via your telephone with these other lonely people, um, you know, you start texting or you start with a phone call and then that escalates to repeated communication. And then with the ones that actually led to person to person encounters, I'm interested to hear whether or not the people you met matched with the voices on the phone or the text messages that you were getting, you know, cause inevitably you come up with some sort of concept of who this person is based on what they're writing to you or how they sound on the phone and what they're saying. And I'm just interested to know if any of them surprised you. Like, were you expecting, like, this beautiful girl uh, to be greeting you, and then you arrived, and, you know, that wasn't the case? Or do you know what I'm saying? Like, what was that What was that like?
2: Right, I understand. But I got to know the people, you know, quite well before we'd meet. So, and we'd exchange pictures, so I knew, you know, broadly a lot about them. But, yeah, the encounters, it's weird. And, I mean, just meeting someone... A, through the phone, and then B, through a crazy flyer. So, I mean, it was this, you know, I didn't know what I was really walking into. You know, I took precautions. You know, this could be someone crazy or whatever. So I'd meet in a public space first time. So, But they were pretty similar, and it, it was just, like I said, that, that immediate connection I had with some of these people that I actually met, you know, on the phone. So I, we knew each other, like, within a few minutes of the phone. It was that kind of despair. You know, i had been you know, lonely my entire life, I must say. Not as lonely as I would when I, when I did this, but in general, I have. And so have these people. I think it just comes from, you know, uh, th- those dysfunctional houses and stuff. So it, it is strange to meet so many people who are very similar. And so these were the people that I'd go out with. So nothing really surprised me, but it uh, just very sad. Like the first day that I went out on uh, with, was with this uh, Russian girl, Regina, college student. And Um, I I met her and just her story within the first 20 Mm. minutes was so bad because, you know, we've already talked and told each other everything about our lives. But I actually, you know, broke down because she was telling me how her dad was murdered, how her mother's a hairdresser in Brooklyn now and like her Mm. mother's life is fucked up. This girl got into drugs when she was 13. She was at this high school upstate for, you know. Children who have just you know abused everything in the world, and her grandparents don't think it's the American dream in America now because they came over, and everyone wants to go back to Moscow. So, I mean, it was just these heavy, tolling stories. So, I, like on that first date, I was just like, God damn, this is like, wow. You know, because normally on a first date, you're talking about oh, the lasagna looks good. I huh? know we're, we're talking about murder and you know the <laughs> stairs. So it's like, so yeah. Have
1: you actually wept? Like, did you actually
2: weep? I did that one date, and probably on, like, four or five calls I did um, over the entire thing, just people would call me, and I would be the moment, whether it was late at night or whatever, and just their story would absolutely destroy me. I'm trying to think about some of the other, like, stories. Um, There was this one girl from the Midwest, um, Kelly, and she called, and this is an incredible story. Her mom died uh, of cancer when she was, like, 12 and she got along really well with her mom. And her dad had Kelly when she was like 50. So she was left in this house with like this 60-plus-year-old man. And she'd never talked with her dad, really. You know, the loss of her mom and his wife really screwed it up. So she, at 13, got into drugs and everything and, like, you know, was sleeping with everyone, and so the 60-year-old dad's watching his daughter just disintegrate in front of her, you know, and and now she's, like, 25, and he's, you know, in his 70s, he's gonna die, and she's, like, going, fuck, you know, I never really tried to connect with him, and, you know, he gave me everything, you know, he made it from... Yeah, it's a tough story. Uh, You know, like, he came from Nowhere And just like completely gave her, you know, a great life, even though she totally like, you know, didn't give a shit about it through her high school days and all that. And just like, and now she's at the end, you know, he's at the end of his life and she's going, God, you know, I mean, she feels horrible. This is a girl when I talked to her on the phone, it said she hadn't told anyone this stuff ever, any of her friends. And I mean, it's just a sad case of somebody who called my number. She was incredibly lonely. And probably, you know, it's one of those people who could definitely just jump off a bridge, you know what I mean? so it's, I don't know. It's, it's stories like that, but that, um, I don't know, just, you know, when, when somebody's completely honest like that and telling you, you know, breaking it all down, like, You know, within a 10 minute conversation,
1: it just tolls the shit out of you. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm hearing it secondhand, and it's like, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to put it. It's like that level, like you say, that level of openness, and um, when someone is sort of sharing the, I don't know, sharing their their life and like their, uh, the deepest part of their suffering with you in a way, that really has no agenda, uh you know they just need to share it with somebody like that is
2: right because in, it's in, anonymous they that's what everyone has told me you know it's anonymous, so I can tell you the shit I can't tell my parents, I can't tell my friends, I can tell you everyone, so I mean yeah, it's these stories like you know there's a few that just destroy you <laughs>
1: well, and it's like I mean that's the thing too that's an, that's an element of it that you probably couldn't have predicted is that like you know you post this flyer. start to get crazy you start to get phone calls but like did you ever like when did it dawn on you that there is an element of uh this being a burden you know to receive this much news from people uh has got to be a drain on your human energy
2: (laughs) it is and actually i've noticed um that that i'm I'm snappier at times too and it, it is it's from talking to these people and I take on you know subconsciously or however their issues and and kind of their experiences, and I'm going to stick with it because I I mean I really did I reached out at a point so I want to talk to as many people, but it does definitely take an emotional toll on you. I mean it's just like I mean it it does. I don't see how it couldn't, but you know it's I never like I said expected to do any of this. So I mean I'm going to stay with it for as long as I can definitely because it it has helped me and. If I can, and a lot of people, and I don't want to take credit, say that, you know, just having you listen to me has helped me. So, I mean, if I can do that, then I'm happy and I'll fight through any of the, you know, pain that comes along with this. Because it's, you know, I'm glad that it it helps somebody, you know. Well, yeah, no, and
1: like, and like this book is, you know, is obviously a snapshot of it. It's a it captures it and it kind of boils it down to its essence, but like it's by no means the full experience. So, you know, one of the things that you were talking about earlier is having a blog or a Tumblr where you're posting, uh, you know, either transcripts or breakdowns of phone conversations along with text messages and whatnot. Um, you know, it lends itself really well to the web for one thing. And then I'm I'm interested if uh, to know if you – like, do you consider this like a life's work possibly? Like, could this be a project that as long as people keep reaching out to you, you continue and you continue to archive this stuff and make it into some sort of life project? Or do you feel like it's a finite thing where you, eventually you're going to have to stop? Or do you not know?
2: I don't know, but I've had, you know, like many relationships In between this, you know, it's been going on for four and a half months, and like the girls I've gone out with for a bit have gotten annoyed. But the thing is, is that I want to stick with it, and I I want to always have this number out there because there are some people who I found need to talk, and and I want to do it as long as I can. I mean, so I don't know; it's still just evolving, and it is a strange, crazy thing. Even that I'm talking to you about it, you know what I mean? Uh, So it's like. I have no idea. I want to go as long as I possibly can and I want to do it. And I mean, it, it's helped me and I'm grateful and it's just an insane accident. And so, yeah, I want to stick with it. I don't know how long it'll last or what, but what I like and I've talked to other people is that. Like, there are people, David Shields uh, knows some students, he's a professor at the University of Washington, and what they're doing, they were so captivated and mesmerized actually by this, is they're putting their own Google number at the University of Washington, they have friends who want to do it at Montana, it's basically anyone wants to talk about anything, so, I mean that would be my hope is that there would be more numbers out there. Cause I found people want and need to talk and, and going to a therapist is one thing. A lot of people don't have the money or they're even too depressed to even go to a therapist or, you know, so it's that's not always an option. So if there is numbers out there and there's people, which I think there would be, I mean, I, I that would be the greatest thing that could come out of this by far. Okay. It's just like a network of numbers, I guess.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, and, and I get that, but like the, you, you say something that, uh, it brings to mind certain passages from your book where somebody with, like, a genuine uh, psychiatric disorder or something really serious or somebody who's, like, uh, you know, uh, really suicidal starts talking to you. You know, if, if people out there who are not qualified or who have no training in dealing with these kinds of issues uh, start right. to start to receive calls or text messages from these kinds of people, you know, like, how do you handle that part of it? I mean, obviously, you refer people to a, a professional. I mean, you do it repeatedly in the book. but.
2: Right. I had a woman actually, right, case in point, and she was in the process of basically wanting to die, was taking pills. And she found my number on Reddit, and she was actually from Spokane, Washington, and she was, you know, just in this complete meltdown, and I ended up talking to her, and I told her to call, you know, the 1-800-SUICIDE-HOTLINE, you know, which which she did. So, I mean, I think people, if they were going to do this, would have to know a few things. Like, I knew that. I knew that, A, I can't deal with someone like this, you know? Um, And so, they would have to know there's a suicide hotline or something like that, but I think the overall utility of it would be better than not having it, even if it is these people who, like you say, don't have experience. I don't. I'm not a trained therapist, but it it's better than not having it, as long as you you know can think through it and like give them the advice. And you're, you know, you, I, I tell people I'm not a therapist. You know, I'll talk to you if you want an ear and you want to talk out an issue. I'll give you my non-professional opinion, which is better than somebody having no one to call, you know what I mean? So the utility is greater having it, even though, yes, somebody could give the wrong advice, but I think overall it it, it overrules that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that strikes me, uh, you know, with respect to something you said earlier is that when you put this flyer up, you started to get messages from people and you discovered that a lot of these people came from similar backgrounds to you. So uh, I think it makes sense to have you talk a little bit about your childhood and how that informs uh, who you are and informed decisions that you made in your adult life and and continues to inform you uh, to this day.
2: Right, right, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in a household, my parents were older. They had me when they were like early 40s. They'd had previous marriages and children that didn't work out. They actually had an affair and left their families in California and ran to Washington State had my brother by accident who's 13 months older than me and then they had me for the planet. I mean, they were alcoholics, they were violent people and they didn't want children. So, basically, I don't blame them. It's just, you know, they dealt with their demons and they they tried the best they could but they weren't parents and they weren't trying to fool anyone by saying they were great parents. They were just, they, they, they fed us, you know, that they had money. That was the one thing we grew up with. But there was no love and they were out partying all the time. And there was a lot of violence and, you know, like first memories of mine are my parents beating the shit out of each other, you know, in the living room or whatever. Police always at the house. Um, so, yeah, it, it's like, I guess I, I, I felt lonely, you know, my entire life. Like growing up in that, it was always like this empty void in the house. My parents would get up at two in the afternoon, you know, hung over. How, how did they, um, how they, how did they, they, they have, have
1: money? You said they you guys had money?
2: yeah my dad was a real estate developer and a sharp guy, and my mom was smart too so he would build you know like thirty houses and make x amount of money and he wouldn't have to work all that much so he was gifted and making money so he could party and do whatever the hell he wanted you know so it was like that that's the way it went
1: right right and so um you know how did you i mean as an adolescent I mean they continued like when did you when did you lose your parents
2: oh when I was seventeen my mom died of liver cancer, which is direct causes cigarette smoking. My dad died um when I was early twenties, um so you know fifteen years ago, ten years ago um and it's I guess uh, i I just lost thoughts, sorry, no, like just back like in the moment,
1: yeah, no, just like you know talking about how you know you lost your parents or like what age you were, and like I'm just. You know, obviously, when you're a really young child, I mean, it's never, you know, there's no age at which that this is easy. But, like, as you grew up, like, how did you emerge from that? But, like, at what age did you move?
2: Right. It's a crazy, insane story. Okay. I grew up education. My parents were intelligent. They weren't educated. Education was never pushed in our family. I graduated high school with like a 1.7 grade point, which is nearly impossible. So when my mom died, my dad basically, I was a junior in high school, he left and left the house to my brother who was a year older, and so my brother and I in high school were just partying, you know, having huge keggers every weekend. And, um, you know, we went into the real estate business after high school. You know, college was never even thought of or anything like that, never even mentioned. And so when my dad died, when I was like 22 years old, I was basically functionally illiterate. I, I really was. I'd never studied in high school. I was—I got by, I was a good athlete, but I never had to do the work. And I got passed because I was a starting point guard in the basketball team. So here I was at 22 Um basically couldn't hardly even speak, you know, English and I go, shit, what am I gonna do? So I, I go, I've always been curious and interested. So I went to community college for a little while, you know, got really good grades and switched to the University of Washington, got good grades, graduated with an English degree, and then got accepted to Columbia's NFA program, went there briefly You know, I had some other stuff going on, didn't do that. So it's like, it's this weird story of how I had to learn basically to think at 22 years old. I had no critical thinking skills. I didn't know how to write at all. it, It was, it's this weird thing. So I've like had two lives and sometimes I can be talking to people and I'll slip back into like this old, you know, tongue, if you will, that I had, I guess. There's a bad example, but O.J. Oh, Simpson, when he would be interviewed, sometimes he would slip back into like his his ghetto talk, and he had to relearn how to talk. And I've had to do the, the same thing as well. So it's like I've had these two lives. And the sad thing is, my brother really—he didn't go to college, so he never got out of that 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 mindset or whatever. And you know, his life's been complete tragedy—one divorce after another you know, one issue after another. And I think the thing that got me out of that is that I learned to critically think and, you know, could think, well, you know, this is going to fuck me up. I'm not going to do it. I, I started to think instead of just follow everything on impulse. I mean, I really didn't think until I had to go to community college. It's, it's weird, but it's strange.
1: Okay. So did you, I mean, obviously you said you were having keggers in high school, but with your parents being, uh, such heavy drinkers. Like, did you, you know? Did you ever struggle with that? I mean, is it something you could manage or?
2: No, definitely. I mean, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I get addicted to everything. I've struggled with it. I've been arrested for idiotic things. You know, uh, you know, like just drinking. Uh, you know, being a drunk in public out of high school. So, yeah. Everyone in my family has been an alcoholic. My brother went to rehab when he was 14, and they said, well, you have a 99.99% chance to be an alcoholic. We share the same blood. It's just because genetically everyone is. So, yeah, I mean, that's been a huge issue. And, like, just I'll get addicted to anything. I I haven't done anything for a while. But, yeah, I mean, when I drink, I, I don't stop. You know, it's not like I don't drink to get a buzz. I drink just to probably escape.
1: So, and you've been sober for a while?
2: Um, Off and on, you know. I've gone years with it, but then, you know, like when Megan left me, I was drinking. You know, incredibly heavy. You know, who? who
1: wait, who's Megan?
2: Well, we had to change her name for the book, Kira. Oh, so okay. is it, it? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I mean. At that that point, I mean, so it's like, you know, 20 beers or whatever, you know, in a night, you know, it's just where it doesn't shut off. And it's weird, too, with an alcoholic, which, you know, obviously I am. I can function and talk perfectly well after like 15 beers, whereas somebody else would be passed out. I mean, it's weird. It's just because it's so genetic for me. And my mom drank basically every night. I was in her room, so my brain was like, you know, it needs that injection. So I mean, I, I can think clearly, believe it or not. You know, I make bad decisions, but I don't lose the skill to like slur words or anything.
1: Wow, wow. So and yeah, and how how long? You're, how old were your parents when they died? Like your parents were were parting. Uh,
2: my mom year? was like, both were around fifty nine.
1: Okay, so they were young. Yeah, they were young. Yeah. Um, okay. So, but I mean, and I guess it's just it's interesting to bring it back full circle that you know you would have all these uh difficulties as a child and then you'd put this sign up and the people that would call you overwhelmingly would be coming from similar backgrounds just based on like give me a call i'm lonely you know what i'm saying it's not like you explained any of this in the note that would give them any sense of you know detail it just turned out that way
2: and i think that's why i gravitated toward even stand up you know or whatever it was just to to speak you know uh, most stand-ups and the reason I got out of it is because it's such a, a terrible world man you put 10 insecure uh, comics in a room and just it's the most uh, just oh it's a horrendous environment. And so, I mean, I did it for a few years, but it, the negativity it breeds. So, I mean, I went there to speak, you know, I, I've been shy, which is another problem. And most comedians, believe it or not, can barely speak, you know, when they're off stage, we go on stage so we can talk, you know, so it's this weird line of, you know, so I think stand up with something that I gravitated toward, then, you know, I burn out on it. I, it it's an easy place to burn bridges. Everyone hates, to everyone just because it's so competitive you're all trying to get you know 10 spots around town there's 500 comedians so just a very negative environment
1: so when did, so, did you start
2: with that when did that begin um that was in like 2005 you know around in that area i started doing it i just i got to the point where i just wanted to go up and, and talk and, and talk about my life and it actually worked you know i'm not bragging but i was known as a, a, a quite good, you know, storytelling stand-up was on Last Comic Standing or whatever, just because I was honest, and, you know, I didn't, wasn't really into making jokes, I wasn't interested in that, I just wanted to share my experience, and, you know, it, it helped, but in the long run, it just wasn't for me, because it is such a, a negative environment, and just years of going through those trenches, you know, everyone wants to kill everyone, that well, stuff.
0: So,
1: so, you were on Last Comic Standing, that that television show?
2: Yeah, in 2010, Yeah.
1: And so, what was that experience like i mean you you're you're basically competing against other comics, and i mean it's like it, it's like uh, the American idol of comedy right
2: <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's a sad that year one of the judges Greg Geraldo died of a you know like four months later a drug overdose, and also a great comedian who was on the show with me uh Stefano died, too, so it's like, Jesus, it's, uh, I mean, it was a good experience, but, it, I mean, comedy is tragedy, and, like, people have asked me, you know, um, could anyone go up and put a sign like that on the street, and there's definitely no way. A guy with two kids married in New Jersey would never put a sign and call me, so it takes someone who I think has a lot of pain and who's been through a lot of stuff and who just, you know, said, this is it, man. You know, mm-hmm. I'm at this level, call me. I don't care what you think of me. And, you know, so it's very similar to almost like a stand up isn't this funny, jolly guy. He's a guy who's on the verge of killing himself constantly, you know, like five other comedians mm-hmm. I knew coming up killed themselves. You know, it's just like, you got to think about a up Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I knew, like, probably 600 comedians, so you know, tons of them. you got to think about a stand-up. Anyone who wants to sit in a room and write jokes to make someone laugh, there's a lot of deep, deep depression and a lot of other issues. So it's just that negative environment, so... I mean, all along all the last comic, you know I made it to the the semifinals in New York. It was a good experience, but just getting back in that it, it, it was tough. I'd taken like six months off before I got the audition and went was on the show, but even just being on the show, you're sitting in the back room with 20 people and it's just such negative energy. I don't know what it's like, like writer wise, like if novelists are all sitting in a room or whatever, but I'm sure it's not quite as bad, but it's that same stuff. An artist is someone who wants to speak that had some pain usually. And so it's just, it's not a healthy environment, I guess. Yeah. what I'm trying
1: to say. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like I was I was just trying to imagine writers. I feel like writers are all kind of sitting in their own rooms. They're very rarely in the same room. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, so think about putting you, I know you're a writer, and like 20 of your colleagues in a room, and you guys got to make the best piece of writing because you're going on stage, and you got to make, you know, 100 people engage in yours, and you're judged on how many people like it instantly. So yeah, it adds that other, you know, Tension there.
1: Okay, so when you're doing comedy and you're doing storytelling stand-up, like how are you getting laughs? I mean, if you're talking about your experience, like I mean, obviously, uh, comedy is what you know, tragedy plus time. So you're d- you're digging into this dark stuff and then twisting it around somehow uh, with punchlines and making it work. I mean, how, how did that go? I'm I'm trying to imagine. Yeah,
2: I, I guess for me, my stories were just very crazy. I lived in Mexico for a year, and I mean, it was like that was a relationship I came out of in 2000. And it was just a horrible time down there. I got mixed up with everyone you would never want to be mixed up. And it was a nonstop party where, I mean the entire country was snorting cocaine. So I mean we'd have parties for days on end. So I mean I just, I was in a Mexican jail for like a day which was hell. I got in a, this guy attacked me and my buddy. And it was near like a Chili Peppers concert. They were down in Cabo and, All these cops just tackled all of us, and they ended up putting us in this little, like, joke of a jail with a dirt floor, sounds like a total cliche, with the guy we got in a fight with. So we're sitting in this, the three of us in there, trying to stare this guy down. You know, the guards are probably wanting us to kill each other. I mean, so all these little stories, you know, I met, like, huge kingpin drug dealers down there. Um, but when I lived in New York, I almost got killed a couple of times. I almost got killed in Mexico. So I would basically tell these stories over and over. And I mean, they are funny, but then natural punchlines develop. So it's not like I'm setting something up and telling you to laugh at this. I mean, that's why my standup, you know, people thought it was strong. Cause it was, you know, with stories that were funny, you know, so it wasn't, I wasn't just sitting there writing, well, I'm going to put a punchline right here. I would just, you know, tell and hone these stories over, you know, years.
1: Yeah. And then what about writing, uh, you know, what about writing books? Like this book sort of uh, found you. You didn't really go out in pursuit of it. And, and you started talking to David Shields and, uh, you know, this is not a conventional text. So, I mean, have you been writing? I, I heard you say you've been working on some memoir pieces and some personal essays. Uh, but yeah,
2: I, had, I actually had like a 25,000 uh, word um, essay the Seattle Review was going to publish. We pulled it because we got this book. So basically, I, after I got out of stand-up, started to take a lot of my material from stage, which was, you know, my autobiographical stuff, and I started putting it into essay form and, you know, just talking about my life, my experiences, my childhood. And so, you know, I'd been working on, uh, you know, this memoir project for a couple of years. And so, it just it worked well with these phone calls because a you're getting me <laughs> and, and and basically all my background which you know shows you know why this guy would you know probably put a sign up like that so it's interesting the way it evolved you know
1: well and and what about like copyright issues with uh, people's texts like how does that work because you get into you get into like a, a new frontier when you talk about who owns their text messages and you know with the technology that we have now like I don't I'm, I'm just wondering how that worked.
2: Yeah, we we had a good copyright attorney. I guess you own the text. It's you know new territory, but when it's sent to you. But basically, the book is you know if we want to break it down, like fifty percent my memoir, and then the other like twenty five percent are calls which I took notes on and wrote up. So basically, that's seventy percent or seventy five percent of the prose of the book right there. And the other are verbatim texts where we got the okay that you can take text as long as you change the name and identifying features or whatever. You know, if she has a scar on her neck. you got to put that scar somewhere else or whatever. So, you know, it's it's complex, but...
1: Um. Yeah, okay. Well, then what about the actual writing of the book? Because, uh, you know, I'm a fan of uh, David Shields. I'm a fan of, like, uh, you know, I read Reality Hunger and was sort of blown away by it, By uh, like a lot of people. It's like a really... Uh, Provocative book, and it's a book that makes you think about how it was written and how it was constructed. And so, when you worked with him, uh, that's a pretty fortunate circumstance because he's really good at doing this kind of book. You know, this kind of like literary collage. Like, how did he work with you? You know, how was this thing constructed? Uh, Because there is a certain architecture to it; it's it's not just a matter of stringing together a list of these text messages or a list. You know, it's that that would be a gross oversimplification. So, how did you build the book?
2: Okay, uh, first of all, like David is good friends with a a talented writer named Michael Logan. Both he and Michael um, looked at you know these phone calls that I'd written up. They looked at you know I had one hundred and fifty thousand words of text, and they thought you know well. Let's, because uh, David had uh, been a fan of my my essay that was going to be published in the Seattle Review, Rage, that twenty five thousand word essay. So we we took that apart, and as I was getting these calls, David and Michael started constructing kind of the the narrative arc, and we would go over drafts and pass it around. You know what works here, what doesn't. So. You know, it was just we had the material. And yet David and Michael are incredible um, at, at remixing material, you know, finding this juxtaposition, what works here. You know, okay, so we'll, we're going to talk about Jeff has this piece of his essay about his dad throwing his mom's clothes in the swimming pool. Let's put that with this text we just got, you know, four hours ago of this woman in Wyoming who uh her, her mom shot her dad, you know, stuff like that. So it was just like seeing all this mountain of material coming in and kind of Putting it together with this essay I'd written, so it was just like this incredible collaboration where we all were in tune because David knew my story. you know I'd been in contact with him since I graduated in 2000 from the University of Washington. So you know we'd been in touch. He knew I did stand up. You know he uh, you know read my essay and stuff. So he knew who I was, and as did Michael. You know I guess he passed it to Michael, and so we knew each other's writing, and they knew this material. So it was just this huge collaboration inspiration that that worked incredibly well where everyone supported everyone they knew what I was going through emotionally and so you know it was it's crazy the way it came together and that yeah very fortunate to work with both those guys
1: yeah I mean and you were just when you were looking at the text and you're looking at uh, the different parts of the book and you're trying to construct an actual narrative you know because it does have to have something of a beginning a middle and an end You know what about that part? And then when you're when you're actually putting the different sections of the book together, uh, were they, I guess, they're theme based? Like you're looking at the different material and trying to you know uh, figure out what theme is at work, and then grouping things that way.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's got a nice arc to it. I mean, first of all, first area we talk about posting a flyer and you know what everyone was saying about it, and all the text coming in, and then second part is like posts from childhood, which is basically, you know, my childhood with, with more phone calls and texts mixed in. And then it just arcs through like, you know, kind of my evolution as a stand-up, um, some of the stuff I've did, you know, the troubles I've been in my life. And so it, it just has this arc. And at the end, you know, there, there's definitely hope through all these voices, you know, tragic as most of them have been, just giving hope and, and trying, you know, they're they're really reaching out to say, Jeff, man, get through this, anything we can do or whatever. So there's this arc from posting this crazy flyer to the overwhelming, uh, you know, response it got. It's got like 30 million um, hits on the net now just like overall people I don't know what they're called links, hits, whatever It's you know so we see that and we see the evolution of this guy me who you know had a very difficult life in some people's eyes you know trauma, childhood, etc., and then just what all these messages coming in from all over the world. You know, a guy in Saudi Arabia saying, you know, it's as lonely here uh, as it is in Times Square, Jeff, but just keep your chin up, man. Hang in there. Things will always get better. So you see this incredible arc that you know, people say there is hope out there in this godless universe, Jeff, but just hang on and, like, find meaning however you did that, find meaning, you know, just just hang in there and keep doing what you're doing and, you know, stay afloat. So at the end, you know, it ends with basically there, there is hope in this chaotic universe and for all these damaged people, myself being one, that, you know, it's, there is some meaning to this existence.
1: So what do you, what do you when you look forward... Uh... You know, do you have a sense of uh, where you'd like to go? I mean, you know, like, do you feel like you're, I mean, you're in a better place now, obviously, than you were when this adventure began. Uh, But how do you see the future unfolding? Are you, you know, like, how far ahead are you looking?
2: I mean, I'm really not. I'm just trying to, you know, push through this and, and, you know, see it through and and see where it's going to go. And, like, it is just so Interesting that you never know who the hell is calling you. I mean, that alone keeps piques your interest all the time. You know, I don't know—is this guy from China that's calling? Is he from Japan? You know, I've had. Uh, people on the front lines of Iraq calling me on their downtime. So, I mean, I'm just going to go with I don't know what's going to happen or what, what is out there or what I'm just going to be in the mm-hmm. moment and, and take it as it comes. But, yeah, I mean, I still have those lonely days and stuff and then I'll, you know, call somebody that i met and, you know, we'll share experiences or whatever. So, I mean, I'm definitely better off but I'm just floating through this because it is, I mean, it's insane. But this flyer for me is as, it, it's crazy as, the big bang you know what I mean it really is it makes no sense just like life so I'm just going to go through it in the moment
1: so what is uh, I guess the last question then is what is your number in case anybody wants to call you who's listening
2: yeah it's a three four seven four six nine three one seven three
1: okay well uh, congratulations on the book and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and I hope that this thing uh, sells a bunch of copies
2: Thank you for having me, Brad. It was a great time. Okay, folks, there you go.
1: That's the program. That's Jeff Ragsdale for the hour. Go get Jeff, One Lonely Guy. It's available now from Amazon Publishing, so to pick up your copy, you got to go to Amazon. You can find Jeff on Twitter. His handle is at LonelyGuyJeff. He's on Facebook, and he's also got a Tumblr presence, which you can access at jeffonelonelyguy.tumblr.com. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It's on Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence, and if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the theme song music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com, and thanks for uh, the transitional music, which comes from a band called Valley Jones. Go visit valleyjones.com. Uh, thanks, finally, to Stitcher for sponsoring the program. Go get that Stitcher app. It's free and uh, it's enjoyable. And then, otherwise, closing thoughts, uh, how to wrap this up. It's a pretty unbelievable story, uh, the whole thing. Uh, Jeff posting this flyer in an act of desperation, people spilling their guts, needing connection, failing to find connection in the world, uh, eventually finding some sort of connection, some sort of temporary reprieve uh, via cell phone, all of which originated via a flyer posted in new york city randomly by a gentleman in dire straits so for me it just basically underscores uh the collective plight of human beings and how everybody on planet earth is engaged in a terrible struggle one way or the other it is easy for no one and uh, some people do have it easier than others that's for sure but it's easy for no one like even a guy like richard branson who seems to have such an easy time of it, who seems to, you know, he makes it look easy. And, you know, you kind of imagine him spending his evenings laughing hysterically in a hot tub filled with supermodels and gold bouillon. Even he is locked in the jaws of a brutal existential quagmire. So, uh, you know, uh, what, what else can you say? I just, I think it's just kind of a, a call to be nicer to other people and to notice them and to uh, communicate more openly with them and ask them how they're doing. Stuff like that. What would happen if people did that for one another on a daily basis? Uh, So, anyway, that's all I got. Please remember that Samuel Beckett was stabbed by a pimp in Paris and that Lord Byron was born with a clubfoot. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it a ton. I will be back again soon with another conversation with another human being who is engineered to communicate in a painstaking narrative Manner.